Is Hialeah's 911 system itself in an emergency? WLRN finds more questionable sales in Miami-Dade's guardianship program. And Guatemalans feel a little more hopeful. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm Tim Paget, And I'm Kate Payne. In the next hour, we'll look at Hialeah's troubled 911 emergency call dispatch system, which seems to be leaving a lot of calls unanswered. Should there be an investigation? We'll also talk with the reporters heading WLRN's unguarded investigation into controversial home sales by Miami-Dade County's guardianship program. Their new report exposes who's profiting. And we'll examine whether Guatemala's presidential election is reason for hope, there and here. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. The 911 system is under scrutiny around the country. Here in Broward County, for example, the emergency communication apparatus has been plagued with issues of chronic drop calls, long wait times, and acute understaffing. Now those concerns are starting to rise in Miami-Dade County, specifically in its second most populous city, Hialeah. After our news partner, the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald, recently reported that almost 70, or excuse me, 7 percent of 911 calls in Hialeah are going unanswered, a Hialeah City Council member called for an investigation into the city's 911 shortcomings. But this week, Hialeah Mayor Steve Bobo said no investigation is warranted. He said the city's 911 system is fully functional and called the Herald's reports erroneous. Have you experienced problems with the 911 system in Hialeah or anywhere else? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. I spoke yesterday with Veronica Brito. She's the El Nuevo Herald, Miami Herald reporter who's been looking into, the, into Hialeah's 911 situation. Veronica, thank you for talking with us. Thank you for having me. How and when did you first hear that there were problems with Hialeah's 911 system? Well, the first time that I read something about it was when I read the Colina report. I think it was late November, maybe December. Can you tell us what the Colina report is? Yes, they hired this firm, the Colina group to find out which will be the best candidate to be the new police chief. And most of the reports talk about the the situation inside the police department. They have like a, a section about the dispatch because meaning dis- meaning the nine one one dispatch. Right. So in this in this report, they mentioned that the dispatch is woefully understaffed. Woefully understaffed. That's that's a serious statement. Right. So they mentioned that the employees there have to work extra shift because they can. Uh, leave the station without somebody else uh, replacing. So that means that uh, they supposed to work eight hour shift, but they currently work 14 or even 16 hour shift in some cases. I interviewed Chief Puente and I mentioned this situation and he told me... And you're referring to Hialeah Police Chief George Fuente. Yeah. He was aware of the situation. He tried to fix the situation, trying to to hire more employees. But I think that they haven't been able 
to hire in, in this particular department. Now you point out in your reporting that Hialeah is the second most populous city in Miami-Dade County, but it has 18 emergency call operators, and only three of those are able to handle all types of emergency calls? That's the information that uh, the director, Commander Jorge Janes, told me when I interviewed him the first time in April, um, and when I first published the, the, the first story. But for my understanding, after talking with sources inside the department, it's not fully true that they have 18 call takers. In fact, when, when you see the sheet from the schedule, in the department, you see that, for example, um, you have for 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., you have one supervisor that don't answer phone calls. You have also uh, three police dispatchers that may have may answer the call. It's a, it's a police emergency. You have one fire dispatcher and you have five complaint desks. That is a complaint officer that is uh, the one that pick up the phone. So you have not 18, you have five people per chief that answer the call between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. If you go to 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., it's the same amount of people we could call call takers. But in the at night, in between 11 and 7 a.m., it's only four. So you don't have 18 call takers at the same time. Right. And you found that from January through May of this year, more than 4,700 911 calls in Hialeah went unanswered. That's almost 7% of the total. Do experts feel that that level is a reason for alarm, especially when you consider that any 911 call could, could be a life or death emergency? Well, about the unanswered calls, the system in 911, they don't have or nationally or internationally, they don't have a standard about what should be the percent that will be acceptable. But the main issue here is not numbers. It's about human lives, it's people. We have to humanize this situation because, for example, the, the major statement on, on Monday compare the city with the county and... What is Miami-Dade County's percentage of unanswered calls. Uh, according with the statement of Bobo, it's about 7% of calls. Hialeah Mayor Steve Bobo. Yeah. So so about the same as Hialeah's then? A little higher, like one point higher or so. How did you go about locating the call data that led you to evidence that there may well be a problem with unanswered 911 calls in Hialeah? Well, I, I after that interview happened, I... So when uh, a dispatcher came to the council meeting and spoke about the issue or being understaffing at what represent for them, and then I start to dig because I think, oh, it's a, it's a information that, that I need to understand better and maybe I will have to write a story about it. So I, I made a request to the city clerk in Hialeah about uh, the unanswered calls, and that's the data that I have. Hialeah officials make the claim that 911 calls that are unanswered by Hialeah do get answered by the Miami-Dade County system. And as you said, you mentioned in your reporting that this is not exactly automatic, right? Yeah. I interviewed uh, the Commander Janes, the Jorge Janes, that is the director of 911 Dispatcher Center in Hialeah, 
And I specifically, when I, I got the data, I asked, what does an answer call means? Where do this call go? And he mentioned in, in the conversation that we have that the protocol is that when you have an unanswered call in number one center, the call taker, when end the call that we're having, they should call back this person. But the problem is if you don't have enough call taker to answer the call, then you don't have enough call taker to call back when they finish that call because immediately could um, start another call. Well, what, what do you think Hialeah, Hialeah needs to do about this situation at this point? And what do you think they will do? Well, I'm not sure if they will do anything at all. But I think they have to think in a way to retain employment. In this particular case, in the, in the stories that I wrote, I mentioned that you have to take 232 hours training to begin answer a call. And even after you are trained, you present the certification for the Florida uh, Department of Health and you pass it, you still aren't able to answer every call because you need to be trained for fire or be trained for police or be trained for um, medical uh, emergencies. So what I mean is, even if you hire one people, one person tomorrow, or you hire ten that they they haven't been able to do, they, these people can answer phone right away. So the problem is you have to retain the ones that you already have, and you have to try to find people that is already trained to start to answer the calls. Because if you hire somebody that hasn't any training about it, they won't be able to answer the call the next day that they've been hired. Right. So training is one of the big reasons, the, the, the level of training that's needed is one of the big reasons for the understaffing that we often see then with 911 systems. Is that, was that the main issue that people were bringing up? The, the problem, I think, it started at least five years ago when 26 employees left the department. But the question that I have is why in these five years, the department or the director of the department haven't been able to find 26 new employees. Well, Veronica, thanks very much again. Thank you. Veronica Egibrito covers Hialeah for our news partner, the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing concerns about Hialeah's 911 emergency call system. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to talk more about Hialeah's 911 situation is Brian Calvo. He's the Hialeah City Council member who called this week for an investigation into the emergency call system. Councilman Calvo, thanks very much for talking with us. Uh, you muted there, Councilman? Do we have you on the line? I'm here. Oh, okay, great. Yes, thanks very much again for talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Look, I think the, the situation is is completely unacceptable and honestly quite shocking. Um, well, well, something well, like this. Yeah, well, well, I, we'll get to I just want to say first, though, I, I should say we did also reach out to Hialeah Mayor Steve Bobo's office, but no one there was able to join us for this conversation. So excuse me there, Councilman, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, I was just saying, I think the situation is completely unacceptable. That's why on Monday of this week, I called for a formal investigation. Um, not only what the article brought up, but that's really just one piece of the evidence. I think it was, you know, kudos to the reporter for putting it all together. But this is something, like she said, it has stemmed from at least a year and a half that we had that first original report from the Kalina Group stating that there was a problem. We had the 911 operators themselves coming before the council. And now added to all that is this data from, from the county and residents, residents that have come forward and stated, I tried calling 911 and no one answered. And, and that was three individuals that came forward. Right. So, you know, putting all of this together, for me, you know, our, our number one commitment, right, as a, as a municipality, we, we collect $400 million in tax revenue every year. Um, we have to provide this this essential service. I mean, it is, like you said, a life or death service. Right. So I think calling for investigation really shouldn't have been anything controversial. But what we've seen is, based on what the mayors responded and some of the other council members in Hialeah, it, it, it has become quite controversial. And there's been a lot of pushback not to have the investigation. Well, what about this statement from Mayor Bobo uh, this week? He, he Again, he said the uh, 911 call center for Hialeah is, quote, fully functional and ready to answer any emergency calls that are received. Uh, he called the Herald's reporting, quote, erroneously reported. Uh, he said the 911 call center is not deficient. Um, and he, one of the main points that he seems to make in this um, statement is that, look, Hialeah's uh, unanswered call rate is actually better than the counties as a whole. Is is you know is that really a relevant point in your mind? No, totally. I think underscores the the, the point. And the point is, you have people that are calling nine one one. Obviously, it's for a reason. Obviously, there's either some sort of emergency. It could be as simple as a traffic accident. It could be somebody that's having a cardiac. Uh, situation, medical situation. It could be, you know, domestic violence. We don't know. And that's the whole point. You know, yeah. I think the mayor had made statements. So, well, these are probably just prank calls uh, that people are just hanging up. And that's why you have these these high numbers. And well, that's the whole point of investigation. Let's get to the bottom of it. Is it really just prank calls? I mean, even if just one of these th uh, 30,000 calls or whatever over the past two years, that have been missed, even if just one of those was a preventable death. I mean, I think that's on us as a city. And mm -hmm. so that's why I'm calling for the investigation, because this is a, a matter of life and death. This is a matter of preventing crime. I mean, I think the mayor has touted this this law and order uh, sort of policy, even from the days that he was campaigning. And how can we turn our backs on not just the data, but the actual employees, the, the the people that answer these calls are saying there's an issue and, and that drastic action has to be right. taken. Right. I mean, well, how can we just ignore that? Well, let's talk about the employees. The the, the Colina Consultant Report that Veronica Egibrito just mentioned um, uses the, the, the words woefully understaffed. How does Hialeah's staffing compare with, say, Broward counties or, or most other 911 systems, to your mind? Listen, we have 223,000 residents, according to the census. Uh, as city leaders, I can tell you that number is grossly understated as well. I mean, we're probably much closer to 300,000, just especially with the recent immigration in the last couple of months and year. So we're, we're a big city. We're a major metropolitan city. The day that I toured the 911 center myself, I saw three people 
in the chairs where the uh, call takers, you know, answer these calls, three folks. And those, those phones did not stop ringing. I mean, it was call after call after call after call. Right. Um, the report, like you said, it says woefully understaffed. But if you keep reading through the, the section on 911 towards the end, it makes the same sort of plea that uh, the, the 911 employees themselves said before council, which is drastic action has to be taken. So I think a lot of the talk from the mayor and some of the other council members is like, well, you know, what are we going to do? We, we just got to keep trying to hire folks and we'll keep trying to train them. And, you know, we'll just, you know, that's the best we can do. And I don't think that's that's right. sufficient. Now, it isn't sufficient. The, the um, Veronica Aguibrito also pointed out on a conversation that this understaffing that seems, uh, you know, uh, common to all 911 systems, not just here, but around the country, is it's often a result of the long and involved training required. And of course, that's that's understandable. You would want long and involved training involved in something Absolutely. like this. But how can Hialeah and other systems improve that situation? Look, yeah, look, here's what's happening. We are basically from from the talks I've had with the employees, the supervisors there. Um, we're essentially hiring bottom of the barrel. You know, where we pay some of the, the lowest salaries for these folks. When this whole process began, that job paid fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, I was able to push, and now it's at $17 an hour starting pay. So we basically just hire anybody that applies, um, that puts in a resume. We'll, we'll put them through the process. They'll do the background checks. They'll do the polygraphs. They'll get their classroom training, which takes six weeks. Then they'll do 240 hours of live training. And then they'll have enough training where they can sit for the state exam. That whole process, the best candidate, it'll take them six months to go through. And uh, the average candidate will take perhaps a year to go through that process. Right. Now that we've you know, paid for all that training, put them through the ringer, and now they're fully certified 911 operators, many times they'll leave because the pay isn't enough, it's not competitive, right. and they'll go to another department. Right. And now we have to start the process all over again. Right. Well, it is an involved process. You're right. Uh, but we'll have to leave it there, Councilman. Brian Calvo is a Hialeah City Council member. Councilman Calvo, thanks very much as always for your time. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Still to come, my co-host today, Kate Payne, talks about WLRN's unguarded investigation. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Kate Payne. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The Guardianship Program of Dade County cares for people who the court finds are incapacitated and who often don't have any other friends or family who are able to help them. The program then sells their property, including their homes, to help pay for their care. The latest report in a months-long investigation by WLRN has uncovered a network of players profiting from these sales, in some cases reselling the properties on the same day for tens of thousands of dollars more than the initial price. And those resale profits don't go to the vulnerable people under the care of the guardianship program. WLRN has uncovered that many of these players are connected to City of Miami, City of Miami attorney Victoria Mendez, her husband, and her mother. Mendez has said her family has done nothing wrong. Following WLRN's reporting, the Miami-Dade County Inspector General's Office launched an investigation of the guardianship program sales. 
What are your thoughts on the guardianship on the guardianship program? Do you have a friend or loved one under its care? Give us a call at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Joining me now are WLRN investigative reporters Josh Ceballos and Danny Rivero. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having Happy us. Happy to be here. Thanks. So, Danny, we're talking about some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Remind us, what is the purpose of this program and how do people find themselves in this program? Right. So this program has been around for more than 40 years at this point. It's the oldest such program in in the state of Florida. And it was really created because there was a lot of very elderly people who at some point start to experience things like dementia or Alzheimer's, and then they, they start losing the ability to take care of themselves. They might have Social Security money coming in. Um, They might have a little bit of money, but they can't actually take care of themselves. So this program in particular was set up to help care for people in those situations who don't have friends or family members who can step in. And they're often somewhat lonely, elderly and isolated, isolated. Exactly. So this this um, program came in and the, the purpose is to care for those people and what our reporting, a lot of it, what it's been centered around is, you know, I, I mentioned some of these people might have money. Some of them have properties. So mm-hmm. so some of them are, are, are homeowners. And so when the guardianship program takes hold of, of assets and they start to manage life decisions and whatnot, oftentimes what happens is they look to say, OK, well, what can we sell? What are the assets that this person has in the end of their life so we can sell it and then use that money to care for the people? And um, that's really where a lot of our focus has has spent. Mm -hmm. And some of these assets are considerable. And Josh, under state law, the guardianship program is required to get the best deal it can um, when it's selling this property in order to pay for for these individuals' care. But you all found that some of these homes are selling for as little as $30,000. Uh, which in this uh, market economy is really striking. Um, what what does that mean for the people in the program's care? Right. So the the guardianship program have ha, has what's called a fiduciary duty uh, to the people under its care, and that, like you said, it means getting the best deal possible so that they can get the most money for their care. But what we found is, um, in a lot of instances, these homes are being sold for what uh, other people have said is below market value or just very, very low numbers, like you mentioned. And what that means is the pot of money that's supposed to go towards this person, like putting them in a nursing home, making sure that they're cared for, their medical bills are paid, is much smaller than potentially it could be. Um, You know, especially in the cases where a property is sold the very next day or within a week for tens of thousands of dollars more than that has led some to question, okay, is the program getting the best deal possible? Um, to get the most money for this ward, this uh, incapacitated person in their care. And that's kind of what's at question. Sure. And so this week, you two published the latest installment of this special investigation, Unguarded. Go to WLRN.org to read all the details. And and you all found even more questionable sales and a web of, of real estate players behind this. T- Danny, tell us tell us what you found. Right. So the, the third installment of this reporting is really piggybacking off of some of the things that we previously reported um, and and also just zooming out a little bit to look at not just the core players that, that have been doing this, the companies Express Homes and, and Gallego Homes, 
um, but also the people participating in other ways. And and what we found is the, one of the the people who has worked as a property appraiser with with the the guardianship program is a longtime friend and business partner of Carlos Morales, who is the owner of Express Homes. So in in, in some cases, we identified he appraised the property for what some people would say is below market value. Mm -hmm. His friend, Carlos Morales, through the company Express Homes, purchases the property. And then we found cases where this real estate appraiser, um, Antonio Lorenzo, were a company owned by him or his father, were later transferred that property by Express Homes. Um, and then we found even as as um, recently as earlier this year in January, that same property appraiser is also working as a real estate um, agent reselling the properties that were originally bought through through the guardianship process for more than double. Um, so he's he's actually involved in multiple ways on both sides of this equation. on, on all <laughs> sides of the equation. And and. Um, you know, and one of the most interesting things we found is there was a nonprofit organization started um, a number of years ago called the Southern Housing Alliance, and it was started by Carlos Morales, the owner of Express Homes. All of the listed registered agents of that nonprofit, all of them have acquired guardianship homes. Um, wow. All of the, all of them have been involved in in, in some degree of this, and the, so it's, you know, in in doing the reporting when we connected all those dots and we saw that one of those listed officers is this this man Antonio Lorenzo who's also appraised properties. It's clear it was not just Express Homes or Gallego Homes. There was somewhat of a nexus happening. And, and so that's really what our latest installment is, is diving into. Okay. And how have these individuals responded to your reporting? To, to be honest, at this point, they're not talking. Um, there is a, a, a county investigation that's open with the Office of the Inspector General um, that was launched after our first installment of this. Um, Miami City Attorney Victoria Mendez um, we did ask her because some of her family members are involved in this. She was the vice president of one of the companies, Gallego Homes, that purchased some of these. Mm -hmm. um, she just told us flat out, my family has done nothing wrong. The The guardianship program has maintained that it's done nothing wrong. They are not responding or answering any further questions that we've asked them for over, yeah. the, over the last couple of months they are really closed-lipped at this point i will say that in the pat for previous stories um an attorney for carlos morales has said you know a lot of these homes are dilapidated um when they get to it you know these um older people who are under guardianship maybe they've been living alone for a while so that house is in disrepair mm -hmm. there's cockroaches maybe there's a hoarding type situation mm -hmm. so their um, their defense is that you know, these houses are dilapidated. Carlos comes in and fixes them up that, uh, quickly. That's why it's called Express Homes. And so that's why they're able to get the houses for such low, uh, for so cheap, basically. And then he renovates them and, and resells them. So that's that's what they've said. And some people have kind of questioned because sometimes those the sale happens within a day for much more. So how much renovation happened within that time? I, that's that's a question mark. Right. Sure. And, and the you know, just just to follow, I mean, the the guardianship program, when we have spoken to them, um, they have stressed to me in the past that they 
they're under some pressures that, that yes, they, they do have a fiduciary duty to get the best possible deal. But in some cases, because of things happening in someone's life or whatnot, they, they have pressure that they need to quickly and very efficiently sell these properties, get them off of the hands. And what we found looking through a lot of the court cases is in some cases they hold what appear to be kind of auctions for these properties um, where it's, it's basically an internal email list of mm. potential cash buyers that they have where they'll, they'll just offer up a property and say, hey, we have this house, you know, will you, will you buy it? You know, we're, we're taking bids on it. But I mean, you're talking about maybe a dozen people on that list. And by looking through them, a lot of these people know each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, it's within we, this network. It is within this network. I mean, we've mapped a lot of that out. So, a, so a big, um, you know, question mark and uh, criticism of how they've handled these sales in the past is why not open these up to the general market? And in some cases, they have been posted on something like Redfin or or, uh, you know, a website, but then immediately it sold off. And in one case, I remember with a house from Coconut Grove, it was listed for less than a day on a public website and then sold for considerably less than the asking price to one of these companies. Okay. I'm Kate Payne. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the latest installment of WLRN's Unguarded, a special investigation into the guardianship program of Dade County. For more details, go to WLRN.org and call us with your thoughts. 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Or you can tweet us at WLRN. Josh, you all talked to a number of friends and loved ones of people in the guardianship program, some of whom said they didn't have the opportunity to try and buy back the family home uh, that was sold through this program. And one of the women you all found was actually evicted from her mother's home when it was sold. Tell us about her story. Yeah. So uh, like we said at the top of the story, a lot of these people don't have friends or family, but in some cases they do. And Mm -hmm. through some weird court shenanigans they their loved one gets in into guardianship so Mm -hmm. emma ladson her mom was rebecca um she owned a home in liberty city and she was placed under guardianship she was she had alzheimer's and dementia Mm -hmm. um and emma was living in the home with her mother but once she was placed into guardianship the the guardianship program now technically had ownership of the house and um, the ability to do what they wanted with that house. So they initiated an eviction against Emma, who had a, a daughter, you know, a young daughter at that time. Wow. Um, and the way that Emma tells it, you know, her, uh, she came home one day and all of her things were strewn out on the lawn and uh, she had to go to a homeless shelter. My daughter and I were evicted from our home five days before Thanksgiving on 2012. For Thanksgiving, we spent in the shelter. And when we got there, we saw people from our neighborhood, and everybody was saying, you guys have a home. Why are you here in a homeless shelter with us? Really powerful. And did Emma, in, in talking with with her, did she have an opportunity, a say, in trying to buy back that family home? Yeah, so she she went to the court, um, and you can see this in the court files. Not all of it's public. You, have, you can go to the courthouse and request some of these documents. Mm-hmm. She put in letters to the courts uh, explaining, like, I am not a tenant. Uh, I'm my mother's daughter. My mother owns this house. Um, outright. Outright, you know, and, you know, how can you evict me? Um, but they, the, in court, they argued that 
she because she was giving her mother money she would give her mother uh $600 something like that every month to help her out they said because you've been giving her monthly payments you are a tenant um and so we have the right to evict you and then the judge agreed and she was evicted from her home so she didn't have a say in the sale of the place she grew up and wow. if 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 i can add on mm-hmm. on the the sale of the, of that home um you know a central character in the latest installment we we did um this appraiser Antonio Lorenzo appraised that home it was sold for $31,000 to the company Gallego Homes okay um and a month later it was sold to a company owned by the Lorenzo family for $1,000 less and they continued to own that home and rent it out so they they got it for $30,000 after Antonio Lorenzo first appraised it Mm-hmm. For what Emma Ladson told us is far, far under below market, market, market value. value. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Josh, um, there are also powerful testimonies from from people you spoke with about you know when they lose these these family homes, it's not just generational wealth that can be passed down, but it's also irreplaceable family photos and and heirlooms, right? Yeah, so we spoke to a few people who told us things like that. Uh, one of those people was Sonia Raymond. Her mother, Juana, was placed under guardianship. And another situation where they, she didn't have a say in, in the sale of her family home. Um, and Sonia sent me photos um, of her mom on the couch with all of her grandchildren. And in the background of the photo, there's there's pictures, family pictures of the grandchildren. And that was all disposed of um, per court order. Okay. When I tell you we got nothing, we got nothing nothing from the inside of the house you know even all the pictures of my children you know of my sisters i mean my mom had two three four five six seven eight nine you're talking about ten grandchildren that lived that knew that as abuela and abuelo's home okay and we have uh joe in hollywood on the line um who has a question uh, about these issues beyond the guardianship context absolutely hi thanks for taking my call go ahead joe so so i've noticed um these similar things happening to individuals that are not a part of the program um i've witnessed it myself you know elderly uh, handicapped disabled veterans um falling into the same situations where there's individuals that should be maybe held to a higher standard representing them, doing the best by them. And there, it seems like there's no accountability in that. Th- Danny? Th- yeah, th- thank you, Joe. Um, it, it is a longstanding problem in, in, the, in the state of Florida, um, the potential for elder abuse. Um, the legislature in past sessions, not so much in, in this one that just passed, but has taken up some um, questions and, and reforms, um, a, a pretty major one that that will be going into effect at the end of the year actually that passed in 2022 is for the first time specifically for guardianship cases because similar things to what we're reporting here in Florida there has been prosecutions in other parts of the state for for similar things where where judges and juries found that these wards these incapacitated people they were being taken advantage of um, but at the end of the year, for the first time ever, Florida is going to have a database of all the guardianship cases that mm-hmm. are that are active, and you'll be able to put names and 
faces towards so people can actually track this okay. through the court system because even now the experts don't know how many cases there are and it's Got it. obscured in darkness. It's hard to follow. So lots lots more threads to follow going forward. Well, thank you, Danny Rivero and Josh Ceballos, WLRN investigative reporters. Thank you for your work and thank you for joining us. Still to come, Tim Paget discusses what the Guatemala presidential election looks like from Palm Beach County. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Guatemala held the first round of its presidential election this past Sunday, and there was a positive surprise. It didn't turn out to be as rigged as many democracy advocates had feared. Guatemala's conservative political establishment did its best to get more reform-minded candidates disqualified from running, usually by getting them charged with bogus crimes. But one of those reformist candidates, Bernardo Arevalo, made it onto the ballot and got enough votes on Sunday to make it to the runoff election on August 20th. He'll face the establishment candidate, Sandra Torres, who was once arrested for corruption. Arevalo's unexpected showing has a lot of Guatemalans feeling a little more hopeful about their country's beleaguered democracy especially Guatemalans who felt driven to leave the country because of its crushing rural poverty, gang violence, and government corruption. Many of those Guatemalan migrants live and work here in South Florida communities like Lake Worth. What are your thoughts about Guatemala's presidential election and the conditions there that drive so many Guatemalans to migrate to the U.S.? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is someone who works every day with that Guatemalan migrant community here. Dana Torres is the clinic director at the nonprofit Guatemalan Maya Center in Lake Worth. Dana, thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you for having us. For starters, um, Dan, I want to explore with you the reasons Guatemalan migrants most frequently give you for why they flee Guatemala to come here. I know, for example, in recent years, and we've done reporting on this ourselves, in recent years, many have come as climate change refugees, for example. What, what are the, the biggest reasons that you hear day in and day out of why they have fled Guatemala and have come here? Well, I think that climate change tends to interact with poverty. So a lot of our families that are migrating into the United States are because they are fleeing poverty and that poverty is resulting or is a result of climate change, um, you know, impacts to their agriculture, impacts to their ability to access social programs is what drives families here. And the Partic reason particularly in that area of Guatemala known as the dry corridor, right? That is correct. Yes. And so it does impact many regions, but we do tend to see areas that um, experience higher migration rates. And a lot of the times you see the families coming here, their intention isn't to move here permanently. The intention is to come here, save up enough money, send money back to their families and hopefully return back to their to their homelands. Right. And I wanted to sort of connect the dots here with you. I mean, I mentioned at the outset that one of the big issues in this presidential election in Guatemala is official corruption. And official corruption also, uh, if, if you feel the same way, uh, let me know, but uh, uh, corruption also plays a role 
in that rural poverty we're just talking about. For example, I was, you and I were talking about how uh, in, a, in a more recent administration in Guatemala, the, um, the environmental minister admitted to me, for example, in an interview that he didn't know anything about environmentalism. He was just there because uh, he was a crony of the president. And, uh, you know, that's that's an example of the kind of official corruption that does have an effect on that rural poverty that migrants are experiencing. No. Yeah. Yeah. Corruption is a huge um, indicator, a huge uh, impact on the communities. And most of the time what we're seeing is that the Families in Guatemala just feel disenfranchised. And so with this uh, recent uh, election, you can see how families are refusing now to participate in elections. Um, with all the candidates that were running, one of the highest percentages within the election went towards null or blank ballots. Exactly. So Glad that, you pointed that out. Yeah. Yes. And so that's going to play a huge factor in the runoff that's coming up. But also it lets you know people are interested in government. They are interested in what's happening with their their government, but they don't feel represented. They feel that no matter who they elect, they're always going to be facing the same issues. Yeah. And so um, it is important for them. I think a lot of them were surprised in seeing Arrivalo come into the, the final runoff. And it does give some people, I would say, maybe hope, maybe curiosity. But because there's been such a longstanding history of corruption in Guatemala, it's going to be a tough sell for that percentage. Right. Do a lot of the Guatemalan migrants here, when they're looking back uh, at, at the country now, do they uh, feel or hope that, that a lot of those no or abstention votes that we saw in the first round of the presidential election will go to Arevalo and maybe lift him uh, in, into winning the second round? I want to say that they don't want the votes to go to Sandra Torres. Um, a lot of them are not familiar with Arrevalo, and I think that's because it really was an unexpected right. um, result. So a lot of them are kind of thrown off by who is this individual? They don't know much about them. Um, for them, their main hope was either between um, Carlos Pineda and then also Telma Cabrera. But of course, since they were disqualified, um, a lot of them were just kind of like, okay, we don't, we we don't know what to do. We don't know who to vote for. And so now having Arrevalo come in, hopefully that's going to tip that balance a little bit. So I can't say that they are uh, pushing for Arrevalo. I just know that they do not want Sandra Torres. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us, um, Dana, are, are, are the Guatemalan migrant community here, are they allowed to vote in the elections back in Guatemala? So they do have an opportunity to vote from here. Um, there is a consulate that exists here in Palm Beach County in which they right. can um, register their votes. However, again, it's difficult for them to participate in these type of processes because they're dealing with so many other issues. Um, it's hard for them to connect with the political conversation when you're dealing with day-to-day -day survival conversations. And so we we have not seen a lot of engagement from our community in regards to the um, political races in Guatemala, but I do know that they all share the same sentiment, which is 
nothing's going to change. And so I feel that that's why they may be uh, hesitant to participate, hesitant to even care about what's going on with the government in Guatemala. Now, Arevalo, uh, the reformist candidate, he obviously, he's making the uh, fight against that corruption plague in Guatemala, the, the main plank of his platform. But do you think voters both there and here would maybe rather see a reform candidate tackle the issues of, of poverty or the gang violence? Um, do they do they perhaps not really see uh, so much of a connection between corruption and those other factors that drove them out of Guatemala? I think that they are, I think that they're willing to take a chance on the unknown um, just because, again, with Sandra Torres, it is a promise of change, a promise of a new um, opportunity for Guatemala. But a lot of people point to the fact that she still surrounds herself with a lot of the uh, um, prior government officials. Uh, so there's, the old there's guard, that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of like, okay, if we are going to have any change, we need to see fresh faces. Mm -hmm. And while they may not be as familiar with Arevalo, I think that they are more willing to take their chance with Arevalo just because they don't know. With Sandra Torres, they feel like we know what to anticipate from her presidency. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the Guatemalan presidential election and the conditions there that drive so many Guatemalans to migrate here. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Um, the Guatemalan community here, Dana, when they see uh, situations like reformers like uh, investigative journalist Jose Ruben Zamora, in Guatemala sentenced to lengthy prison sentences simply because he was investigating uh, mm -hmm. that corruption. You know, they, they I think they, they slapped him with some sort of bogus um, money laundering charge or something. When when the Guatemalan community here looks back at, at their country and they see things like that, how, how do they react? Well, I mean, obviously, they they see it as an attack on free speech. Um, and I think that they their concern is if this is what's happening with our media and with our uh, journalists, the concern is, okay, am I next? Are we next? Are we going to be able to speak out? Are we going to be able to disagree or have any ability to hold our government accountable because of the practices that they've seen with journalists or anybody that criticizes the government? Right. And what are their feelings also about how little recent governments have done to address those crises you and I were just talking about in rural Guatemala, in places like the Dry Corridor? Um, what do they wish government in Guatemala would do to alleviate that kind of crisis? I think create more economic opportunity. That is the main driver of migration. There's not enough wages, enough jobs for people to be able to afford, um, you know, their homes, food or whatever else they may need. So I think that they are looking for more social support. I think that they are looking for more regulations when it comes to transnational companies. Um, I think that they're just looking for a way to be able to make a living in Guatemala so they don't have to run the risk or um, take that journey of coming into the U.S. They don't necessarily want to leave Guatemala. They want to stay in sure. Guatemala, but there's just no opportunity for them to um, 
survive in Guatemala at the moment because of that lack of uh, economic opportunity. And what would the Guatemalan community here like to see the U.S. do more of, or perhaps less of, uh, to help pressure Guatemala's political and economic elites to reform and do more to help Guatemalans who feel they have no option uh, but the, to, to head to the U.S. border? I mean, we've heard the, the Biden administration talk a lot about, you know, pouring billions of dollars into the what's called the Northern Triangle uh, in mm-hmm. Central America, Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. But what do they here feel the U.S. needs to be doing more to ameliorate those the, the situations in, in the countries like Guatemala? Well, I think a lot of our migrants, a lot of our families that migrate here to the U.S., I think their focus has been mainly on uh, pathway to citizenship here in the United States. And so they do want to see more opportunities for Guatemalans. Um, you know, they there are some countries that do receive protected status. And so Guatemalans would like to see themselves included in that protected status right. because of the reasons they're fleeing Guatemala. Right. So far, Guatemalans are not included in the TPS system, right? Correct. They're not yeah. included in the TPS system. And a lot of the families that do migrate over are indigenous families that are Um, indigenous to the Americas. And so there should be some consideration to these indigenous families that faced genocide uh, not too long ago to come into the United States. As far as accountability within the country, um, I think that's that that would be a great start. It would be mm-hmm. the U.S. holding the the Guatemalan government accountable right. because we are observing the human rights issues that are happening in Guatemala. We are observing right. the poverty levels. And then also climate change is a huge driver mm-hmm. of poverty and migration. Right. So Dan- I think. Yeah, Dana, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I really do appreciate your time. Dana Torres is the clinic director at the Guatemala Maya Center in Lake Worth. Dana, thanks very much again. Thank you, Tim. Finally on the roundup, if you're traveling this weekend, make sure to pack your patience. Greg Chin, the communications director at the Miami-Dade Aviation Department, told WLRN that the Miami International Airport will see a slight increase over last year's record 4th of July weekend traffic. They're expecting an average of 145,000 daily passengers, or more than 1 million total passengers, between yesterday and next Wednesday. Well, in addition to arriving to the airport a little earlier, giving yourself about three hours for parking check-in, the security checkpoint process is uh, to be mindful of potential delays and cancellations. Chin also advised travelers to remain in contact with their airline in case the flight is impacted by any weather conditions. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy, Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend. And I'd also like to say thank you to Kate Payne. And thanks for listening. Gracias. Merci. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.